Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is side A of Gen X Covers, where we curate a mixtape featuring Gen X artists covering classic tunes. These are the songs we grew up with, but surprisingly, it might be surprising to some, these were not the original versions. Yeah, and no, there are about half of the covers from the 80s. A lot of people would be surprised to know their covers. A good example, when we were talking about Do You Believe in Love by Hugh Lewis and the News. Right. And the fact that it was originally done by uh, Mutt Lang's band. I forget the name of the band now. <laughs> um, the, the version wasn't very good. But yeah, that was a cover song. So um, we'll be probably listing a lot that people weren't aware were yeah. covers. Well, and I, I actually found out uh, Huey, Huey had another one as well, Heart and Soul from the sports album. Really? That's yeah. a cover? It is a cover. It was uh, originally recorded by Country Rockers Exile. Uh, wow. They released it on their 1981 album of the same name. Interesting. I, I was kind of blown away. There are so many songs I had no idea. We could have actually made that the theme, right? Songs that were covers you didn't know were covers. Yeah. 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 Anyway, too <laughs> So, I, for instance, okay, Obsession by Animotion. Did not know song? that was a cover. That is a cover. Family Man by Hall & Oates. Are you serious? I am serious. Who did that originally? That one originally, and this kind of really surprised me, Mike Oldfield, hmm. who's best known for Tubular Bells, the soundtrack to The Exorcist. Interesting. He actually recorded it with Maggie Riley for his 1982 album, Five Miles Out. Wow. I mean, it was a dud. It went nowhere. Well, yeah. yeah. But uh, Alone by Heart. Hmm. Um, that one was a re- uh, remake, Saving All My Love for You by Whitney Houston. I knew that. I knew that. Uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I think I knew that as well. In fact, four songs from that album, uh, She's So Unusual, four songs for covers. It was um, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, right. Money Changes Everything, Yep, I knew that. When You Were Mine, okay. and All Through the Night. Okay, yeah. All I know four. She Bop was original, and Time After Time was definitely right, original. Right, yeah, those yeah. were originals. Elvira by the Oak Ridge Boys is a cover. Yes, I, I, I saw that and my, my jaw dropped. I'm trying to figure out who the hell would want to sing that other than the, I mean, I've never been a fan of the song. It, it's one of those earworms. But well, as a kid, every time I heard that, I imagined Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Yeah. I thought it was about her. <laughs> I was <laughs> Un- wrong. Understandably, yeah. <laughs> Better Be Good to Me by Tina Turner was a cover. Shadows of the Night by Pat Benatar. I've Done Everything for You by Rick Springfield. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. It, it's, it's unfathomable to me. I never knew it. I mean, semi did. Mickey by Tony Basil. I mean, that, that was originally, uh, oh, Kitty. I think it was called Kitty, and it was a song by, by one of the boy bands. Um, well, I think what probably happened is, you know, all, all these indie artists, new wave artists, a lot of them, right, right, weren't very successful. But there were some good songs in there. So it makes sense the record company would 
you know, if they have the rights uh, or the publishing rights, pull those for these artists that were mm-hmm. successful. So no, it makes ab- sense. Absolutely. Yeah, but it, it, it is going to be a very interesting episode. I don't know how many out there will know that some of these songs were, in fact, covers. Hopefully, we'll, we'll surprise them with a few. So. All right. Well, you're up. All right. Well, this is probably a, a prime example. Um, my first song is by The Naked Eyes. It hit number eight in 1983. It is always something there to remind me. The original version was by Lewis Johnson in 1964. Okay. Did you know this is a Burt Bacharach song? I knew it was a cover. I didn't know it was Burt Bacharach. Yeah, it's But Bert that Bacharach. doesn't surprise me. No, it doesn't. But listening to the original version, the naked eyes sounds nothing. Nothing like, like the song was intended. And folks, we're going to put on our mentioned songs list oh, all yeah. of the originals so you can go back and compare them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Always Something There to Remind Me was written for singer Lou Johnson uh, by Burt Bacharach and Hal David in 1964. Um, Johnson, who I had shamefully, I mean, I always think that I'm like this walking encyclopedia, especially at the 50s, 60s era. Uh, I had never heard of this guy. He, he was, I guess, often dismissed as little more than the male Dion Warwick. Uh, he was an uptown soul singer um, that rivaled Warwick, I guess, as the premier interpreter of the songs of Burt Bacharach and Hal David during the composing team's formative years. Uh, but unlike so many other vocalists who recorded the duo's work, commercial success really proved frustrating for him. Um, he had a, a number of attempts and, and nothing scored. In fact, he would he had this habit. He would record songs uh, that went nowhere and then... A month, two months later, somebody, especially Dionne Warwick, that that was a pretty common uh, mishap for him, would cover his version, and they would have a major hit with it. Because so much of music is about the image, unfortunately, right? It's about the image, it's about the it factor, and some good songwriters may not have that. Yeah. Well, as it turned out, Bacharach and David, they delivered what many believed would be Johnson's breakthrough hit. There's always something there to remind me. The song is a gut-wrencher, right, uh, about a guy who has lost his love, but he could not let her go because everywhere he goes, he sees reminders of her. Um, the, the Naked Eyes version really plays down a lot of that emotional trauma, I guess, but it, it's pretty central uh, in the original version. The year was 1964. Beatlemania was at its height, and American pop music was being taken over by the British invasion. But ironically, in Britain, American music was becoming more popular than ever. And in an effort to promote this song, to finally give him his breakthrough in Britain, Bacharach escorted Johnson there and introduced him on the BBC TV show Top of the Pops, where Johnson performed it. Uh, The song was a bigger hit in Britain, but not for Johnson, because at the same time, a young British singer named Sandy Shaw had recorded and released a version of it, and her version topped the British charts. So Johnson's version failed to make an impact in Britain. Shaw's version reached only number 52, um, here in the U.S., but Johnson's went nowhere. Um, and, and 
you know, pretty soon his career just stalled and, and he was dismissed by the label. Uh, before the decade came to its end, several artists, I guess, recorded this track. I had never heard any version, um, but they included Dion Warwick, Wayne Fontana, Brenda Lee, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Johnny Mathis. I, I guess an R.B. Greaves cover featuring the Muscle Shoals rhythm section took the song to number 27 in 1970. Um, wasn't aware of that either. Then the song was largely forgotten until new wave duo Naked, Naked Eyes uh, arrived on the scene. Um, a key presence in the synth-pop movement of the early 80s, Naked Eyes, of course, formed in Britain. They were a British band in 1981. Uh, they were comprised of former schoolmates Pete Byrne and Rob Fisher, and the duo actually debuted in March 83 with the LP Burning Bridges. That was the British release. Uh, the album was reissued in the U.S. a month later, and it just took the band's title. It was titled Naked Eyes. Um, surprisingly, the lead single was this majestic cover of Always Something There to Remind Me, and the track emerged as a huge hit on both sides of the, of the Atlantic. It, it peaked at number eight on Billboard on the strength of its video, which received heavy airplay on MTV. Uh, Naked Eyes cover bears little resemblance, as I said, to the original version, uh, though Burt Bacharach described it as, quote, very nice. <laughs> so what that means, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Naked Eye's second single, Promises, Promises, was also a major hit. And their future looked bright, but their sophomore LP, 1984's Fuel for the Fire, fared poorly. And its lone single, What in the Name of Love, um, barely scraped the top 40. Did we feature them on the Two Hit Wonders episode? No, no, because they actually had three. Oh, did they? Uh, okay. Yeah, What in the Name of Love, it, it hit top 40. Okay, but it just, I don't remember that one. Just, it was like 38, 39, uh, which made them a three. I still consider them a two-hit one. Yeah, I, I do too. <laughs> yeah, Promises, Promises, and always something there to remind me. I remember the video mm-hmm. very well. Yeah. It was always on. So, uh, But yeah, the duo, Naked Eyes, they disbanded soon after that second album, and uh, now they, they're a footnote in music history. But their version of this song... So much better than the original. I always love the, uh, the the bells. I'm not. I'm sure it's synthesized, but it sounds like almost like church bells being played. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. In, at the beginning uh, and throughout the song, uh, in between the the uh, verses. Yeah. Good pick. Good pick. Um, that was about the same time as "Break My Stride," wasn't it? Because I think those two songs, Matthew Otter, I listened to quite a bit. But for some reason, I think they were at the same time. I don't know. I don't know. I um. Yeah. I mean, it was. I don't. I don't. I don't associate Matthew Water with new wave, and in my mind. Oh, I do. Yeah. Do you really? Yeah. It's, it doesn't sound new wave to you. I don't. I don't know. I. I mean, he was a one-hit wonder, of course. Right. But I. I. I guess maybe it's because I, I throw him into that physical, you know, uh, New Year's resolution, you know, group of of songs. I, it has nothing to do with physical exercise, but that's how I always gotcha. associate. No, I get you. Yeah, Matthew Water. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I associate it more with physical by Living Newton John, which also was not about. <laughs> well, yeah, exercise, right, but right. Um, I have to go back and listen. I, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it is new wave, huh? Oh, yeah, I, synth- I would say so. It is synth driven. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, talking about songs that really don't resemble the original, my next one fits that category. I'm talking about "Can't Get No Satisfaction" from 1978. The cover, of course, from uh, originally was was the Rolling Stones. This is the version from Devo. And yes, this is probably the farthest removed from its original source of any song we have have brought to the table today.
from Akron, Ohio, local favorite. Devo took New Wave to the extreme. Uh, mixing in elements of art punk with synth pop, the band often sang surreal and satirical songs about the de-evolution of our society, thus the band's name. Did you know that's Devo, de-evolution? Yes. A lot of people yep. didn't know that. Didn't know that. Although many saw the band as an elaborate joke, the layers uh, below the deadpan delivery were dead serious. In fact, the band officially formed at Kent State University in 1970 following the massacre by the National Guard troops who killed four students. The version of the Rolling Stones classic, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, originally started as a cover of Painted Black. That's what they set out really? to do. Mm-hmm. Now that I did not know. But the lyrics didn't work as well uh, with the music they had composed. So they looked for another Stone song and they settled on Can't Get No Satisfaction. Huh. Brian Eno produced the track. That's no surprise. And, uh, and Mick Jagger approved of the recording. Yeah, I, I vaguely recall. They played it for him, didn't, didn't they? Yes. He, mm-hmm. he just had this... I mean, no emotion. He just right. was staring deadpan, you know, listening. And then didn't he get up and start dancing to the song or he something? He may have. Yeah, I didn't read that. But yeah. uh, the video aired prominently during the early days of MTV. And the song was later used prominently in the Scorsese classic Casino. Uh, Devo uh, is quite an acquired taste for most listeners. Uh, but there's so much more that, that meets the ear. Um, I, I would really just recommend if somebody, you know, you have an afternoon and you kind of want to just immerse yourself into something new. Um, listen to some Devo, but listen several times, and you'll start realizing what's actually there, right? Oh, yeah. Um, I love how they just take this original and completely reinvent it, right? Making it their own, which I'm sure is a phrase we'll use a lot <laughs> during these next um, two episodes. But, yeah, I mean, even the melody is altered. Uh, so the lyrics are there, and and some elements of the, of the chord progression, of course, and the, and the melody's there, but they really do make it their own. Oh, yeah. Well, the moment you dismiss that that guitar riff, right. you know, it's you, you basically strip the song of its Rolling Stones origin. Well, it's, it's all ba- so. the the the, made, the lead instrument in this is the bass, and the and the bass line is just incredible. Yeah, uh, it's incredibly creative and, and incredibly difficult to play, but uh, I I like it too because it. it Painted Black is fine. I like that song. But for, for Devo, I think this works because their, their satirical, right, lyrical content was all about our society and how we get wrapped up in superficial things, right? And I can't get no satisfaction with, you know, what kind of shirts I wear and this whole idea of what I'm supposed to be, but I'm still not having any fun doing it. Fits perfectly with Devo. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. Right, yeah. It's, right. uh, yeah, I, um, Devo, I, I love Devo. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because they are local boys. I, I don't know, but um, should have bought some some flower pots and brought them over. <laughs> yeah. We could have painted them warm on our heads for this episode. You know, um, I, I really, I was kind of surprised they didn't get into the Rock Hall uh, last year when the, on their first nomination. I'm hoping they get in soon. I don't know. I mean, there's no band like them they, right. they certainly were originals so it's like the b-52s they were kind of their own thing exactly extremely influential moderately commercially successful but as far as the impact it had on on other artists huge oh, very huge yeah all, right. all right well my number two uh this might be a song some people have forgotten about entirely um i went with a song by the go-go's it comes from their vacation album from 1982 the name of the song is cool jerk
The original version was by the Capitals. In 1965, the Capitals took it to number seven. Um, the jerk, do you know how to do the jerk? I don't. Now, I never took time I, to learn. I never knew either. It turns out it's not much of a dance Is at that all. different than the cool jerk, or is it all the same? It's thing? all the same, oh. yeah. The, the jerk, I guess, was, was a sudden and unexpected dance craze in 64 and 65, uh, with a number of songs dedicated to it. Most famously, The Jerk by The Larks, which reached number seven on Billboard. Uh, other jerk songs of the time included The Big Jerk Part One, Can You Jerk Like Me, Come On Do The Jerk, Jerk and Twine, and Jerk It which starts to sound really dirty when yeah, you say that I, I, enough times. <laughs> when you there. say it enough times. Um, unlike the twist or the mashed potatoes, uh, the jerk was very basic. Uh, to do the jerk, one simply had to jerk his or her arms up in time to the music. Hmm. That was the jerk. I could probably handle that. I, I think it's a dance I probably could master, yeah. Uh, but for some reason, it was huge in Detroit, uh, where a lewd variation uh, called the pimp jerk developed okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, this inspired Donald Storball guitarist uh, for a Detroit band the Capitals to write another song on the theme just as the craze was dying down everywhere else in the country uh, the label would not allow the band to title the song Pimp Jerk my how times have changed <laughs> <laughs> but um, they, they, they compromised with Cool Jerk and uh, with that sanitized title uh, lead singer Samuel George struts his stuff, explaining that he was the king of this new variant of the dance. Uh, the song was a surprise hit. It reached number seven to tie the Larks for the biggest jerk song of the era. The <laughs> biggest jerk song. <laughs> it's like a jerk store from oh, It is, yeah, right? Uh, another jerk song would not appear until 1990 when The Time released Jerk Out. I don't remember that one. Um, but, but the Capitals, they'd been around since 62. And... Uh, Basically, um, they couldn't muster another hit. They, they broke up a few years later. This, they, they were a one-hit wonder. Uh, their one hit, though, endured because Cool Jerk remained a favorite on Oldie's radio stations long after it was released. Uh, now, this is back when Oldie stations played 50s and 60s music, not, you know, of course, our music. When Nirvana starts playing on the Oldie stations. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> which I think maybe it uh, is. They, a, they very well may be by now. I mean, know? 105.7 it's kind of always been the local, you know, Cleveland Oldie right. station. I, and think, I, I know now they play a lot of music from the 80s and 90s. They do. I, well, I know they're still primarily 70s, 80s. I don't, oh, are they? I, don't, okay. I don't know if they've slid into the 90s yet, but it's... It's going to happen. It's only a couple years away. Um, but anyway, I, Cool Jerk, yeah, it, it was covered a number of times, I guess, but most famously by the Go-Go's. Um, now, uh, the Go-Go's. Five girls who somehow went from California party girls who did not know how to play their instruments to being one of the most successful bands of the early 80s. Who didn't know how to play their instruments. They no, didn't. No, right, no, right, no, yeah. They were, no, they were, in fact, they um, act, Jane, Jane Wineland was really good. Yeah. Bass player was really, drummer was really, yeah, no, they learned. They, they, learned. they did yeah. learn, yeah, and they became quite, quite impressive, actually. Uh, their 1981 debut LP, Beauty and the Beat, uh, reached the top of the Billboard charts and eventually it went double platinum, which is not bad for a band that had been spit on and booed off the stage on their first British tour shortly before the album's release. Yikes. Um, but the climb to success, it, it took a toll on the Go-Go's and most of them, um, you know, they were all in their mid-20s and in addition to finding the rocket trip to the top of the monu of, uh, you know, of the musical mountain, we'll say, a bit dizzying, their hard touring lifestyle, which included a whole lot of sex, a whole lot of drugs, and a whole lot of alcohol, uh, it, it took a lot out of them. So the pressure was on, though, to keep the music coming, but the band was also seriously burnt out. 
and the result of all this was a sophomore album considerably less consistent than their debut effort, uh, but one that still showed some flashes of brilliance. Not surprisingly, the best song on their second album was its title track, which was a song about how badly the girls needed some time off, right? Uh, Vacation was their second highest charting single. It's their masterpiece. It is. It really is. And it, it remains one of those iconic tracks of the 1980s. Beyond that, though, the album was hit or miss. I've always enjoyed Girl of a Hundred Lists. I, I think it's a fun song. Beat Nick Bit. I almost said that wrong. <laughs> Beatnik Beach is, is an enjoyable and whimsical bit of surf rock. And is then Head the, Over Heels on there? Um, yes. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Head Over like Heels that. is on there as well. Um, but then you also have their cover of Cool Jerk. And it has always been popular with GoGo's fans. Uh, it, it actually, it's one of those songs that really focuses in. It features drummer Gina Shock and, and bassist Kathy Valentine. Which is kind of nice, because the two of them often found themselves sidelined by the popularity of Belinda and, and Jane. Um, but for those who are not Gogo's obsessive, the, the track sits precariously on the fence between smile-inducing and cringeworthy. Well, we'll see what you think. Uh, but it does have a kick-ass bass, bass line, and, and that's why I'm including it here. I yeah. love the bass line awesome. on this song. So I went with the Gogos for my number two. Nice. And and you got to uh, to meet some of the Go Go's. I did, yeah. Ago. When they were inducted a couple of years ago, they were they were doing a signing at the Rock Hall. So I I went up um, and I, I had my Beauty and the Beat album. Uh, they signed that. I, I purchased. Uh, I think it was Kathy who wrote the book. Um, might be Gina, but uh, it was it's basically a, a history hmm, of, of cool. the Go Go's and um, with beautiful pictures. I mean, it, it's it's it is a really nice nice photo. Uh, photo album of their their history so yeah i met them um i mean, it was very quick i mean they, yeah, yeah, they, they rushed you through the line i didn't have right. a chance to talk but um nonetheless i, I had their signatures which is kind of nice very cool all right my next one's a song that a lot of people probably don't know is a cover song and uh that is by a little reggae new wave band by the name of ub40 and uh their biggest smash red red wine from the album labor of love think people know this one's cover 
I don't think a lot of people know. Hmm. I don't. I know people that are parents' age from the oh, boomer generation. The would boomers know. would definitely know. Uh, yeah. I don't think a lot of people from Gen X know this. Hmm. I could be wrong. No, you might be right. Yeah. I, I, don't, I just know Neil Diamond. Yep. So, you know. Originally recorded by Neil Diamond. Again, a lot of people don't know that he wrote um, I'm a Believer. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah, the monkeys. Yeah. Uh, reggae New Wave band UB40 took a song in a completely different direction. Not as extreme as Devo did to the Stones, but, but pretty close. Um, in fact, the band didn't even know that Neil Diamond's version existed when they recorded it. Really? So that's what makes me think that maybe maybe in America people knew, but or maybe they weren't into classic um, music as much. That's too funny. Their version was based on a reggae version by Tony Tribe in 1969. Hmm. So they actually more did, did more of a cover of, of the Tony Tribe track, which was reggae, which makes sense. Yeah, no. So technically, it's it's a cover of, of Tony Tribe, which is a cover of Neil Diamond. Got it. Got <laughs> that makes it. sense. Okay. Got it. UB40's version is up-tempo, it's poppy, it's much more fun than Neil Diamond's. Uh, and as a result, uh, the cover version is way more iconic than the original ever was. Uh, the song hit number one in the UK in 1983, but did not fare well in the US at all. However, the song was re-released in the United States in 1988. This time, it went all the way to number one. So it just shows you how some of these new wave songs, you see that a lot in, in music history. Uh, Dream On from uh, Aerosmith was an example of that, where they released it and initially did not even hit the you know top 40. And then a year later, once they played more live shows and picked up more uh, airplay, then it was very, very successful, right? Yeah. Um, Neil Diamond said that UB40's version, what do you think? Did you like it or not? I think he liked it. Neil Diamond said their version is one of his favorite covers yep. from the many versions that have made from his catalog of songs. Yeah, I, I just, I, how can you not love this? It's just fun. You know, the reggae beat to it, it's, I, I'm not a particular fan of the song, but I'll listen to reggae all day, yeah. you know. You don't like the UB40s though? No, I do. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Do. I, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I guess um, my, my parents were Neil Diamond fans. Uh-huh. I, you know, it's a Jewish family, so I kind of you yeah. had no choice but to grow up with Neil Diamond. I um I just never cared for his gotcha. original version, but oh, so you like the UB40? I version like UB40 better. Gotcha. better. Yeah, you remember the meme from about ten years ago that said, "If you know the words to Red Red Wine, UB40." Do you remember that? Mm. <laughs> oh, UB40, yeah. I get it. Ha ha. Now be UB50. That hurts. Actually, <laughs> actually, Neil Diamond now when he performs live plays. A reggae version. He sings a reggae version of Red Red Wine. Does he really? So he's kind of incorporated his original with what uh, Tony uh, Tribe and, and UB40 uh, were able to do with the tune. And so he kind of does a mishmash stylistically of that. It's actually really cool. Yeah. I almost I almost went with a diamond cover uh, for this. I, I let it go because we we typically don't do two artists of you know the same artist. Urge Overkill? Yeah, I almost yeah. went Urge Overkill with uh, Another one a lot Girl of You'll Be don't a, know a Woman Soon. But. A cover. Well, I, I placed this song in my all-time Hot 100. Really? That's how much that I like this song. Yes. Okay. And, uh, and my wife, uh, when we were dating, now it may have changed, I should ask her, but this was her favorite song of all time as well. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's just a perfect song. Yeah. 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 And I, I've always enjoyed it. I don't know that it would rate that high for me. Certainly not my favorite. That's pretty cool that yeah. that would be her favorite. Yep. I mean, it's probably changed. It's been 35 years, but. Right. Yeah. I just remember that was. I thought that was cool because it's something with because we came from different musical directions, you know. Yeah. That was that was one of the Venn diagram songs that got us started. No, that is very cool. Um okay. Um uh, my next one. Uh I went with Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. 
It is from the album I Love Rock and Roll from 1981. Which was a cover. Which was a cover. Yeah, the Arrows originally did I Love Rock and Roll. Um, But the song that I used, the song that I selected is Crimson and Clover. Originally by Tommy James and the Shondells from 1968, and this was a number one song in 1968. Um, okay, we just talked, we just literally just talked about it. Rock Hall Snubs, yeah. right? Those bands that have been slighted. There have been so many, right? And the list continues to grow. But one worthy contender, this really bothers me. Tommy James has never even been nominated. Now, a lot of people relegate him. They, they, False, they bubblegum. falsely yeah. identify him as a bubblegum artist. And understandably, Hanky Panky. Um, but he was psych- but psychedelic bubblegum. Exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> and he influenced so many artists. I mean, the 1980s brought a number of his songs back to the charts. Tiffany covered I Think We're Alone Now. Mm-hmm. Billy Idol covered Money Money. Yep. And of course, Joan Jett. Here we have Crimson and Clover. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is... No one did uh, Crystal Blue Persuasion? Not that I'm aware of. I don't know that there's ever been a cover of that one. Um, it comes from the Crimson and Clover album. Uh, I was part of that psych- late 60s psychedelia. Um, which, look, this is a fascinating history. I didn't know this. Tommy James was more than a musician, okay? Doing my homework for the episode, I learned so much about the song. First of all, as, as it turns out, James constructed this slice of psychedelia from his favorite color and his favorite flower. Uh, one morning as he was getting out of bed, the two words, crimson and clover, just kind of came to him. He thought it was... Uh, it's good phonetically. Yeah, he, th- yeah. he thought it, it sounded poetic. He, he wrote it down. And then he and his drummer, Pete Lucia, the two of them worked together to construct the song that we know today. They were just beginning work on the album. When vice presidential... Uh, our vice president, he was a presidential candidate, Hubert Humphrey, uh, asked James to accompany him on the campaign trail. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, today, it's common for musicians to play an active role in campaigning for presidential candidates, usually the Democratic side. You very rarely see artists uh, with the Republicans for whatever reason. Kid Rock. Um, yeah, Kid Rock. You have a few. One. Yeah. Uh, Ted Nugent, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. is always yep. uh, right there to support the right. Um, but this was not so in 1968. Tommy James was the first popular musician in history to campaign with a presidential nominee, hmm. which I did not know. Uh, in fact, Hubert Humphrey uh, basically asked Tommy James to lead his youth affairs program um, as part of the campaign. Now, a lot changed during the months that James was on the campaign trail. Okay, that's why he had uh, Crimson and Clover just it was left unfinished because he he took Hubert Humphrey up on this offer. 
when he returned um, to the music industry, everything had changed. Because when he had agreed to, to go on the campaign trail, music was still singles-minded. The biggest names in music were singles acts, the Association, Gary Puckett, the Buckinghams. Um, when he came back, when he returned to the studio after months of campaigning, the industry had shifted. And suddenly, it was all about albums, okay? The biggest names in music now were Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Santana, Joe Cocker, The Doors, Neil Young. You can thank the Beatles for that with Sgt. Pepper. Uh, yeah, and that was, yeah, that's the turning point. And, and Pet Sounds. Yeah. According to James, there was a mass extinction of singles bands. Most listeners may not realize that 1968 was the dividing line, when so many successful bands called it quits and never had another hit record again. Uh, for more than a decade, albums had really consisted of filler, especially that mid-60s period. Um, an album up to that point had been whatever was, uh, was not the single, right. uh, essentially. It was common practice by most labels to name the album after the one big single that opened it. And then, of course, that would give uh, a head start. It would give a push in sales to the single. Every other track that followed on both sides of the LP was either fluff or it was a cover version of some other artist's singles. Uh, 1968 was also the year that the industry went from four-track to 24-track production. So James knew that if he wanted to stay relevant, he had to completely reinvent himself. And the album he was working on at the time was Crimson and Clover. So after the challenge, James and his band, they created this seminal album of Psychedelia. And according to James, Crimson and Clover was the most important song of his career because it allowed him to make that move from AM Top 40 to AOR format. And he said that there's no other song that he ever worked on or any other record that he ever made that would have done that for his career. So, he should be in the Hall of Fame. He, he really should, yeah. Many songs, too, they need to be cut down uh, before radio stations will play them, right? But Crimson and Clover was the opposite. The song was only two and a half minutes long. So the label spliced together an extended version for FM radio. That's the version we'll put on the, the uh, mentioned songs yep. list. Um, if you listen to that version, you can hear some really bad edits, though. <laughs> um, I didn't really notice them as a kid growing up because I... You know, my dad always had the oldie station on, but uh, when you listen to it now, yeah, the, the edits are not pretty. But as an aside, Crimson and Clover peaked at number one during Christmas of 1968, okay? At the end of the song, when the vocals are heavily processed, you know the part mm -hmm. I'm talking about, yep. many listeners, I guess, thought that James was singing Christmas is over instead of <laughs> Crimson and Clover. Because of the yeah, time, yeah, it's red and green too. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I actually um, have a, a Tommy James greatest hits on vinyl do you? over there. Yeah, never mind on vinyl. I have it on CD. But um, yeah, this this of course is a covers episode. So let's talk John Jed for just a moment. Uh, Crimson and Clover was the second single from her album. The title, as we said, was a cover of an Arrow song itself. Um, Jed had always loved the song Crimson and Clover, but it was songwriter Kenny Laguna who recommended that she cover the song. Laguna was a songwriter and producer. He had worked with Joan Jett for many years, dating back to The Runaways. And he was also the former keyboardist and background vocalist of The Shondells. There you go. So, need I say more? Uh, that, that's what really, that was the catalyst, and yeah. Joan Jett covered the song. She scored a major hit with it, of course, and when she was inducted into the Rock Hall, she actually performed the song with Tommy James. Oh, cool. So... Yeah, someday I, should, I, I hope he makes it in, but I, I really do fear that they label him bubblegum and they're going to forget about him. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. So It just takes you know a, a few modern artists to start singing his praises, and you can get back into that, you uh, would think. that conversation. We'll, yeah, we'll cool. see. 
Well, my next one um, is kind of a uh, part of the disco revival of the 1990s, mm. if you remember that, in, oh, the, yeah. in the early to mid-90s. Um, and Take a Chance on Me, the, 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 the huge uh, ABBA smash hit, uh, but this time it's done by Erasure. 1992 from their album ABBA-esque. If you change your mind I'm the first in line Honey, I'm still free Take a chance on me If you need me, let me know And I'll be around If you got no place to go When you're feeling down If you're all alone When the pretty birds have flown Honey, I'm still free Take a chance on me Gotta do my Some of my earliest memories of music on the radio include Bee Gees and ABBA, and my favorite of all the, the ABBA stuff. I loved Dancing Queen, but my favorite at the time was Take a Chance on Me. Uh, when I discovered in college that Erasure had recorded a cover version of the song, I immediately made my way down to Finders in downtown Bowling Green to buy a copy. The song, which was never released commercially as a single, appeared on the EP ABBA-esque, which featured, which featured four ABBA covers. In the video, Vince Clark and Andy Bell dress in drag as Agnathena and Frida. Uh, Eurasia's uh, song is not only a huge departure from the original, uh, but it takes the disco song into techno territory and even includes a, a mid-song rap by Karen uh, Jerry, a.k.a. MC Kinky, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is really the only part of the song that I don't dig. It just It's not that I don't like the, the, the idea of having this, this rap interlude. It just kills the vibe of the song. The song's going along, and then this kind of, uh, to me, interrupts it. That's just me. It, it does, but of course, I, I know what's coming up on your list. I don't want to give anything away. But, <laughs> but as I'm imagining sequencing for the entirety of, of the, the mixtape, I, I, I imagine putting the two songs together, of course. I think it's going to be the, the rap break that, that's going to actually break up some of that monotony, oh, because the two songs are... And the beat does, the beat doesn't change between oh, the two songs. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, no, I do agree. I mean, I, I always liked Erasure's version. I always thought the that the rap was. I never knew who did it. MC Kinky. <laughs> yeah. That is that's too funny. Yep. I um, never have never heard of MC Kinky, but apparently I've heard her. So or him, him, her. Uh, it always sounded like a female. Yeah, right? I believe. Well, the first name is Karen. I don't. Okay. With a C though, C A R O N. Hmm. So. But yeah, I, I believe it's female. Yeah, it sounds female. Yeah. I, I don't know my British uh, 80s rap. No, I, I can't say I do either. Critical, uh, critical response was generally favorable, um, but a few other critics panned the rap interlude as well. Um, ABBA and disco in general saw a nostalgic return in the 90s with movies like Muriel's Wedding and, of course, the Broadway musical Mamma Mia. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and it seems like that's kind of a thing, right? Because remember, in the 70s, there was that nostalgia Mm -hmm. for the 50s with American Graffiti and Shanana. And then it would make sense then in the 90s, we'd have nostalgic for the 70s. Yeah. Well, and and disco, I still, I mean, we grew up 
during that period where they were burning the disco albums, right? And then, you know, all the all the rock stations were, were leading the, the call uh, to, to try and destroy and put an end to it. I still don't know why disco had such a bad rap. I really don't. I just um, I think it's because people think about it. There were a lot of bars that probably had jukeboxes in them that got true. turned into discos in 1976. Well, yeah, that's true. And people probably resented that. Yeah, I can see that. But for me, I'm, I'm such a fan of blues and soul. Right. That I mean, disco is just. The, I mean, it, disco was. I mean, there was that funk element first of all, but it, it's just, it, it's just the, you know, the evolution of of soul and. Uh, and blues music with dance, you know, yeah, with, with the integration of dance it's just I think it was the culture that really turned people off yeah. right because the culture before was rock and roll right and now it's you know John Travolta in a leisure suit dancing on a multicolored yeah. floor yeah there <laughs> you is, know, so there is a that. lot of that yeah. as well yeah um, but yeah I mean most most music fans most musicians will tell you that there's a lot of really good stuff that was produced in the disco era oh yeah well the Bee Gees themselves I mean you you want to talk about premier songwriters. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just... And a lot of the new wave and, and dance and techno artists, you know, in the 80s and 90s and the 2000s, um, especially, um, who am I think of? Uh, what can I think of it? Oh, Daft Punk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. I mean, in fact, uh, one of their tracks pays uh, homage to the originator of disco. Um, I believe he's a French gentleman. I, I can't recall his name now. But they took an interview when he basically discovers or creates the genre uh, in his studio and um, you can see a through line through that all the way through you know right. the dance stuff uh, later on no you're, you're, yeah you're absolutely right alright so for my number four song I am going with George Harrison's Got My Mind Set On You it is from Cloud Nine the 1987 release it was number one Got My Mind Set On You hit number one it was there for a while I got my mind Got My Mind Set On You, it was written by Rudy Clark, originally recorded by James Ray. Ray was an R&B singer of the early 1960s. He was best known for the 1962 hit single, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody. Now that song was actually a favorite of the Beatles. They had an early 45 of his first single, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody, and they used to perform it live uh, when they were performing in Germany as the Silver Beatles. Um, it was soon discovered, though, by Freddie and the Dreamers, uh, a rival British Invasion Band. Uh, Freddie and the Dreamers took it to number three on the UK singles chart, and the Beatles stopped performing it uh, when they did. In the United States, Ray's single was followed in July 62 by an eponymous album that contained the follow-up single, Itty Bitty Pieces. That reached number 41 on the Billboard pop chart, as well as Got My Mind Set on You. Now, 
An edited version was released later in the year as a single on the Dynamic Sound label. Um, George Harrison purchased a copy of that single, Got My Mind Set on You, in the summer of 63, when visiting his sister Louise in Illinois. Uh, he wanted to cover the song, but bandmates John and Paul weren't interested. You know, it was almost a Beatles song. George wanted to, to cover it. Uh, 24 years later, when writing material for Cloud Nine, Harrison decided it was time to record his cover version, and he took it to number one. Um, Cloud Nine was Harrison's comeback album. Uh, he hadn't had a hit since 1981 with All Those Years Ago, and his last number one on the Billboard Hot 100 was Gimme Love, Gimme Peace on Earth in 73, which we featured mm-hmm. just uh, a couple months ago. Uh, until the Beach Boys released Kokomo, uh, Harrison actually held the record for the longest span between number one hits. Really? Yeah. And, and Got My Mind Set on You, however, was the last time, though, that Harrison charted. Uh, he, he did not release another single I thought there was to hit another, the charts. Uh, when We Was Fab was a follow-up single. I, I did not chart. Um, not number one, but I believe it, went well, to, it hit the top 40. Was that... That was on Cloud Nine. Yeah, no, that's true. But not, it may not have. I just remember it being... Hmm. Of course, I had Cloud Nine and listened to it a lot, and I know I've right. seen the video, so maybe I just assumed that it was a hit. But yeah, I, I don't because Ringo um, appears in the video as well. Right? Um, no, I, maybe you're right. Maybe maybe my source here was incorrect. I, I've, I, it didn't hit number one though. No, sure. it did not. It definitely yeah. did not hit number yeah. one. But yeah. I, I think you're right. It was definitely a single though. I don't know. Uh, it, regardless, yeah. um, the album okay, Cloud Nine though right. was his last sure. last uh, album to chart certainly. Uh, Harrison's previous album was Gone Trouble, uh, which was released in 82, it flopped. And proving though that he could whip up a hit when he wanted to, he released this very simplistic cover song. And it was a huge commercial success, right? A lot of Harrison's work was well off the mainstream. I mean, using unusual instrumentation based on Indian music. Got My Mind Set on You proved that he could release a song requiring very little thought and send it up the charts. And predictably, many of Harrison's ardent followers hated this track (laughs) (laughs) understandably and and they still refuse to listen to it today Um, when Harrison conceived the Cloud9 album he looked for a producer who could carry some of the load and not be intimidated by working with a former Beatle he sought out Jeff Lynn of ELO for the role even though they had never met Uh, he connected with Lynn by having their mutual friend Dave Edmonds get him and get him the message Uh, it ended up being a great fit Lynn brought his distinctive production sheen to the to the tracks and helped out on writing some of the songs. And Lynn's influence can be heard in the backing vocals of Got My, Got My Mind Set on You in, in, in the chorus. Uh, along with Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, and Tom Petty, Harrison and Lynn, of course, formed the Traveling Wilburys in 88. Yeah, that whole time period, they worked on each other's records and produced a lot of really cool stuff. Right, yeah. Um, do you remember the video for this one? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was like, uh, it was in one of those uh, coin slot yeah, um, it, automatic yeah. uh things from right. like the 1930s yeah. or 40s. Yeah, because it, it was really quirky. All yeah. the household objects that moved on their own, right? Um, I mean, it kind of reminded me of a shooting gallery in some respects. Wait too. a minute, there were two versions. I'm talking about the one where um, the ballerina's trapped inside the coin. It's like an arcade and someone puts a coin in and then inside this ballerina's dancing. I don't remember and then the, that. And then the, the, the teenager that puts the coin in imagines herself in the... But you're right, there was a second one. Right, I, I just yeah. remember the one where he's in the rocking chair. Yeah, and, yeah. That's, um, that's another one. I don't remember the ballerina at yeah, all. Yeah, Oh, wow, I'm going to have to go back and look for that one. Yeah. Um, that's the one I thought got more uh, airplay, but maybe not. Yeah, I, I only remember the one where everything starts moving, you know, of its own will. Um, wow, I forgot, I I don't remember the, the ballerina. Um, 
Uh, regardless, uh, with the help of the music channels, Got My Mind Set on You proved so popular um, that it soon got the royal treatment. Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> who appropriately titled his parody, This Song's Just Six Words Long, yep. which was not too far from the, the truth. Uh, so, Got My Mind Set on You, it was the last song by a solo Beatle to hit number one in the U.S., and coincidentally, Harrison was also the first Beatle to hit number one with his 1970 release, My Sweet Lord. Wasn't it, seven, it should have been seven words. This song's just six words long. No, because songs is, um, oh, is a contraction. Because the original was seven. Got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. Seven syllables. Right, but the name of the song, though, is Got, got my mind set on oh, you. Oh, so they're not counting the I. Yeah, so okay. the, yeah, the I, the first. First person pronoun is okay. I don't know. No, that's fine. Take it up with Weird Al. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know. That's something that always bothered me. I'm like, it's seven. I thought maybe he was. Well, he does say, I got my mindset on you, but then when he repeats in the chorus, it's just God, 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 God. Maybe he was just trying to go one word less, kind of like, you know, six minute abs to five minute abs. Remember that joke from I do, yeah. Something about Mary. Yeah. Anyway. Quite possibly. <laughs> no, I, I I liked the song when it came out. I loved the fact that George Harrison was back in the zeitgeist. I was more excited about that. Oh, yeah. And the whole album of, of, of Cloud Nine is really, really good. But it is one of those that, uh, you know, after a while, you don't really want to hear it anymore. No. Kind of like uh, Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. After a while, you just have don't Have you want to... heard? I haven't heard it, but I heard that they... Yes. Was it Fall Out Boy? Fall Out Boy has done a, a sequel. Right. And it's actually quite good it's i'm mad though it, because it's not in chronological no order. it's not it's that not bothers it's me. not chronologically that bothers me too but and and the the phrasing is a little off here and there which give give billy joel credit i mean it is very hard to take all sure. of those headlines and actually phrase them as perfectly as he does in the original from 89 but but fallout boys despite not being chronological it's pretty damn impressive okay I, I know Billy Joel liked it I think yeah Billy Joel people uh, yeah. have been asking him to do a sequel forever and, oh he has and yeah he yeah. finally just kind of said let somebody else do it right yeah he uh, he said he was yeah I, I just read uh, a response from him yeah he, he said he, he very much likes it he like us he, I think he was a bit perturbed that it's not chronological right but I don't think that anybody I Again, I'm not a huge fan of We Didn't Start the Fire. Um, neither is Billy Joel, for that matter. I, well, just musically, it's, there's yeah, nothing there. Musically, he says it's the worst piece he ever wrote. Um, but the phrasing, I mean, he... Oh, man, I I, I, I do. I, I just tip my hat to Billy Joel because the phrasing is near impossible. He pulled off a miracle with uh, the rapping as he does. Did you, you ever hear him do, when he did, the, um, he did that songwriter kind of... What was it called? When he would... Basically, it was a lecture about his music, and he would play. We saw him up. Oh, in the Akron. question, yeah, the, uh, an evening of uh, yeah, yeah, questions yeah. and yeah. answers. Yeah, yeah, because I think in one of those he he was making fun of the melody because he just took one piano key and da 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 da. He's like, that's how horrible the music is. It really, it really is. You know, he started. There have been a couple times now where he's gotten the lyrics wrong. He skips a verse here. He brings a verse in early. Don Henley always warned him that that was going to happen. So, yeah. But I digress. So I am. Yeah, got my mind set on you. I enjoyed it at first too, and then it just—it's a song that I don't know I ever need to hear again. Really, but I thought it was perfect for this particular, you know, episode. And I know a lot of the English teachers back in the in the '90s were having kids uh, do a sequel to that song. Really? Yeah, yeah. Late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah, it, it had like three verses. 
to we didn't start the fire. Oh, okay. So we're we're back on village. Oh, I'm sorry. You went back into George yeah, Harrison. I went back into George I'm Harris. sorry. I, oh, I that's apologize. okay. Hey, it's our it's our it's our <laughs> podcast. We can do whatever the hell we want. I just I wasn't no, follow, yeah, no, wasn't no, following no, the no, linear no, structure. I was still I was still it, back. It wasn't I was still back one point. <laughs> Take over. Right, it's your right, turn. turn. Just just go. <laughs> All right. My next track um, is a. There are a couple songs on here where I like the cover as well as the original. Um, because they're different and they're both, you know, done really, really well. This would be an example of that. I'm, I'm going with Sweet Jane oh, by yeah. Cowboy Junkies uh, from 1988 from their um, album, The Trinity Session. That is, of course, a uh, remake of the classic Velvet Underground tune. Um, it, it, and the pick doesn't really f- move that far from the original musically, but the tempo is much slower and the vocal performance is quite different. Uh, Cowboy Junkies' Margot Timmons provides the smooth, melodic foil to Lou Reed's original performance with the Velvet Underground. It's actually much closer to the 1969 live version. There's, there's a live version from the Velvet Underground that's that's more uh, in this, this kind of... Um, Sphere, I guess you'd say. Um, John Cale, also from from Velvet Underground, did a cover, and his cover is similar to the way the Cowboy Junkies decided to record it. Uh, The cover um, recognition skyrocketed six years later when Oliver Stone included it in his ultra-violent satire, Natural Born Killers. That's actually the first time I discovered the song. Oh, really? I got the soundtrack, and I'm like, wow, this is really good. I didn't even know the Cowboy Junkies prior to this. And then I went back and got their back catalog. Uh, The song was also covered by uh, is it Mata Hopple? Hoople? Mata Hoople? Mata I always get that wrong. Yeah. Um, the Jim Carroll Band and Miley Cyrus <laughs> did a version Miley as well. Miley did a version? Yes. Oh, that's that's B- wild. But Lou Reed has said that the Cowboy Junkies version is his favorite of all the covers. I wonder how John Cale feels about that. Uh, I like them both. I would have a difficult time picking my favorite. I'd still have to go with Velvet Underground, but it would be tough. Uh, I think uh, this is because the song's chord structure, which is D-A-G, is so common in rock and roll and so comfortable I could probably name two dozen songs just sitting here that have the exact same chord progression um, and it just provides the canvas for this beautiful but haunting melody yeah no it's it I, I've, I've always liked the Cowboy Junkies version um, in fact I, I like it I'm not I don't know what it is about Velvet Underground I appreciate them I, I like Lou Reed I love Lou Reed's solo work 
but I've never been a huge fan of Velvet Underground. Um, I don't. I, I, to me, it's. I, I don't. I love Sunday Morning. It's one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, I, Cowboy Junkies. I think far and away, it, it's a great version of this song. To me, Velvet Underground is is, is pre-punk, you know, pre-punk rock and roll, and, and so it's very blues-based, a lot of the stuff, very guitar-based, but... It is. Um, it was very experimental. That, and, yeah. And, and you can see it inspiring all of those punk bands in the next decade to uh, to kind of take oh, off the, in different directions. Definitely, yeah. No, I, I by all means, I, I will recognize them for their I mean, I consider them the first alternative rock band. And I, and I, I yeah, I would agree. I, I don't know, I think it's just... When when they're electric, it, it's one thing. But there's so many of their songs that are just acoustic. And when you bring in, um, especially when you bring in Nico, to, Nico, yeah, to yeah. you know, as, as a, a vocalist, I like Nico. It, it's just it's very, it's it, artsy. It's it's, it's very it's, it's, yeah. obviously Andy Warhol had a lot to do with exactly, that. Exactly. So. Yeah. No, I, I've always appreciated them. I've just never been able to make a like a very personal connection with the music. So I, I looked this up because it was really bothering me. You, okay. You, you, you are right. <laughs> oh, am um, I? Okay. Yeah. When We Was Fab uh, was released after it was the second single release. It hit number 23. So, yeah, got my mind set on you. Maybe the source meant number one. I, it had to have. Yeah, I must have just, you know, misunderstood what they were saying because they were talking about the number ones. He had the, he was the first solo Beatle to hit number one and he was the last solo Beatle to hit number one. But uh, yeah, Got My Mind Set On You was definitely not his last single when we was fab. Uh, hit 23 on Billboard. And then he actually hit uh, on the UK charts one more time with uh, This Is Love uh, in 1988. But in the US, when we was fab was, was the last of it. So cool. that was bothering me. I had to look it up. You, uh, have you seen Natural Born Killers? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I probably haven't seen it in, in it's 20 been years. years. Yeah. Of course, that was um, a Tarantino script, and he was so oh, he, he adverse to the way, uh, the direction Oliver Stone took the picture, he actually had his name removed yeah, yeah. from the screenplay. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it has been so long since I've seen it. I mean, it. a lot of people were disturbed by it. I think people missed the satirical element of it, kind of like Fight Club. Oh, yeah. Too many people didn't realize the true message of the, of the film. Yeah, well, and, you know, Fight Club, it always surprised me because I, I felt like, you know, the underlying theme was very clear. But Natural Born Killers, it's very easy to mistake that film. It's sure. just, yeah. you know, just torture porn, essentially. It's um, Juliet Lewis and Woody Harrelson. It's been forever since I've seen yeah. the film. Robert Downey Jr.? Yeah, he was the... Uh, reporter. Reporter, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, I remember enjoying it, but it, it's not a film that I would sit down and watch on repeat. Well, it wasn't pleasant. Stretch. No, but but not, it not was, I don't think it was meant to. It made a big statement about our media, right? And the way that we you know glamorize ultra violence. Oh yeah. Okay, my fifth my fifth uh, selection. I went with David Lee Roth. Okay, and his EP, his extended play, Crazy from the Heat. You could have chosen a couple from. Could have chosen. EP. Yeah, I could have. Uh, it came out in '85. I went with his second single release, which was Just a Gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody, and he took it to number 12.
without me Cause The original version was by Louis Prima from 1956, and of course you're talking about California Girls, which came before. Correct. And this was the EP where, where David Lee Roth goes solo, and Van Halen fans are like, what is this? Is he like a lounge act now? Right. <laughs> which David Lee Roth always had that in his yeah, personality. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And he was able to, to kind of fold that into uh, Van Halen and make it work. I mean, he mm-hmm. had that charisma as a front man. But, uh, but Sammy Hagar, I think you'd argue, right, it, it's just a better front man for Van Halen, but... David Lee Roth made Van Halen what they were in the early, you know, the early half of their career. I well, yeah, yes and no. Hagar is the better musician. Yeah, Hagar is the better musician, the better singer, without yes. without question. Roth, though, I think is the better frontman, just all around. Uh, because, as you said, he made yeah. Van Halen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, had had he been a Hagar, and they were just a hard rocking, you know band from the which they were don't, mis- don't misunderstand me but if, if he had had a Hagar personality I don't think Van Halen would have been as successful in the 80s yeah, but, okay. as they were but think about this I, you know, MTV obviously was, a, was a, a big aid to certain acts that were very photogenic right, right. I mean it became very important to look good on TV um, and even though Led Zeppelin started or Led Zeppelin Van Halen started earlier um, in the late 70s Videos like Jump and Hot for Teacher in Panama really showed the charisma that David Lee Roth had. Well, and that's what I'm saying. And, but, yeah. but Sammy Hagar, remember his solo career, I Can't Drive 55? Yeah. He also had a bit of a persona on, <sighs> on, on video as well. He, now, you he didn't, did. He didn't, you didn't see that side as much. when he was, he was much more serious on Van Halen. Right. It's almost like they went opposite directions, right? David Lee Roth got a little goofy after Van Halen, and, and Sammy Hagar was a little goofy before. That's true. Yeah, I can't drive 55. Your love is driving me crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's, you're not wrong. I am. Um, it's just different kinds of charisma. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I, I, I guess my, I have such fond memories of 1985. I loved that album, mm-hmm. 1984. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, David Lee Roth at that point, I mean, he was just, I'm, I don't want to take anything away from from Eddie, of course, is, you know, one of the great guitarists of all times. But, but I, um, I don't know. I just, for me, David Lee Roth, for a brief period, was just the embodiment of cool. No, and it's an argument that people saw today. Uh, Van Halen fans have an argument. And that's why I I kind of walk the line and say I I like them both equally. Oh, yeah. But they were very, very different. Yeah, I do like them both. I don't know that I like them equally. Well, regardless. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, I went with David Lee Roth's uh, Just a Gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody. Uh, The song was originally... If we're going to go way back, this is the oldest song that we have brought uh, to the episode. Um, it was originally adapted uh, from an Austrian hit titled Schoner Gigolo. Okay. Uh, the Austrian song, I don't know how far back it goes, but the original, the first um, American English recording based on that Austrian song uh, was from 1928. You're talking about the first part of the song because there are two songs, right? Right. That I'm talking together. just okay. Jig- just yeah. a right? Right now, uh, yeah, just a gigolo uh, originally came from an Austrian uh, song called Schoner Gigolo, um, and in 1928 it was first sung in America by a French star uh, named Irene Bordoni. Then in 1931 it became Bing Crosby's first ever hit song as a solo artist. 
Uh, Bing Crosby took Just a Gigolo to number 12 on the pop charts. His version's very slow, though. Sounds nothing like uh, the Just a Gigolo that we know here. Um, it was restyled, though, by trumpeter singer Louis Prima in 56 with an out-tempo arrangement that combined it with another song, which is I Ain't Got Nobody. And um, while still a member of Van Halen, David Ridley Roth uh, decided he wanted to cover it was Louis Prima's version with the com- mm-hmm. you know the combined two songs, and uh, he included his interpretation of the song on his EP. Um, now, after the Van Halen album '84, nineteen eighty four was released. Uh, David Lee Roth uh, released the EP, and it was his first solo output. It did it was wildly successful, and the first single, as we said, was the Beach Boys classic "California Girls." It went to number three, got rampant airplay on MTV. And then Jesse Gigolo, I Ain't Got Nobody, was the next single. It was also a hit, Keeping Roth in the Spotlight. Coconut Grove was one. Yep. Um, yeah, it, it, really almost the entire year. Crazy from the Heat was the album. Was there a song also, Crazy from I, the Heat? I want to say yes. Okay. Um, yeah, the the entire EP, I think, very nearly almost every song charted, I think, or, or very close to. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, David Lee Roth was in the spotlight in the summer of 85 while his group was inactive. And then flush with that solo success and with tensions mounting in the band, he left Van Halen. He never returned. Uh, the following year, Van Halen released 5150, their first with uh, Hagar. And Diamond Dave issued his first full-length solo album that year as well called Eat em and Smile. Um, David Lee Roth... It had Yankee Rose on it, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, David Lee Roth, he played up his party boy image on Just a Gigolo, um, I Ain't Got Nobody, which also gave him an excuse to create a colorful video with lots of you know, lots of beautiful women, women yeah. who were scantily, scantily later parodied by well, Phil Collins. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Billy, don't uh, don't you lose his number. Yeah. Um, but David Lee Roth, when he released this, it was certainly meant as novelty. You know, just a gigolo. I ain't got nobody. It was certainly meant as novelty. Uh, but it sounded and nothing like Van Halen, and, and that was something that Sammy Hagar pointed out, of course, in a 1986 interview with Cream. In the interview, Hagar said, "Just a gigolo." This is a direct quote. You knew that that wasn't Van Halen. That was just him singing. Even if his music is more geared toward old Van Halen type stuff, it still ain't going to sound like Van Halen. If it does, it's going to sound like a very thin version because David Lee Roth is a very thin frontman. Unquote. That was the first of many jabs that the two that the two of them despised sure, one another. Sure. Um, that was the first jab thrown. It was thrown by Hagar. Um, and of course, that verbal assault back and forth has continued to this day. Roth's love of, of quirky songs from a bygone era, though, stems from his childhood, when he would listen to the underground radio station KPPC out of Pasadena, California. Uh, in their Anything Goes format, the station played lots of fun, adventurous songs uh, with, with a focus. Uh, they really uh, enjoyed playing songs by both Cab Calloway and Louis Prima. Um, Roth was never parodied by Weird Al, but early in his career, Bob Rivers did a parody of Roth's version of this song called I'm Just a Big Ego, which, <laughs> which poked fun at David Lee Roth's outsized opinion of himself. The lyrics uh, went very simply, when the end comes, they'll know, I've got a big ego, the world revolves around me, was, was the chorus. <laughs> uh, at the time, Rivers was a disc jockey on the Worcester, Massachusetts radio station, WAAF, where he did the morning show with Zip Zipville. Uh, they did the parody for their show, but it proved so popular that Rhino Records put it out as a single in 85. And two years later, Rivers released 
the first of his Christmas parody albums. It was titled Twisted Christmas on Atlantic Records. It went gold thanks to the popular Christmas parody, The Twelve Pains of Christmas. And something Stuck Up in the Chimney. Yeah. Love yeah. that one. Um, Roth's love for Louis Prima uh, led Bob Rivers to novelty, fame, and fortune. So there you go. It's funny how things work out. But uh, yeah, I just, I love... I put this on more for Louis Prima than I did for David Lee Roth, if I'm going to be honest. I love I like it. No, love I, it. I, 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 um, and, and it's Calif- part of the 80s canon. Oh, yeah. And and California Girls, um, his, I, I never disliked his version of California Girls, but it's 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 note for note. There's no reason know. to. There's no, yeah. He doesn't bring anything he to the song. No, he doesn't, which, which he does here, uh, especially when he starts scatting. I, I was right. always really impressed with it. And even what was the SpongeBob movie? Uh, right in the middle of that goofy goober rock, they actually bring in the David Lee Roth scat from Justin <laughs> Gigolo. So, because um, I remember watching it and thinking that, and then one day the kids were my my boys. They were young at the time. They were listening. I this just came on randomly. I don't remember why or how, but they immediately recognized uh, the scat from Justin Gigolo. Ain't got nobody from from you know SpongeBob. So. Um, yeah, I just thought I'm never going to have another opportunity to include this song. So if we're going to do covers, yeah, no, why not? Let's good throw one. it on. So your turn. All right. I think I got two more. Um, this one here is another song that a lot of people probably didn't know it was a cover, and that is Love Hurts by Nazareth, uh, 1974, from their album Hair of the Dog. Which sounds nothing like nothing the original. At all. <laughs> um, Love Hurts was originally recorded. Ready for this? By the Everly Brothers in 1960. original was not a hit, uh, but Nazareth's version went all the way to number eight. Um, and a lot of other artists made covers as well, including Roy Orbison. Uh, the Who has a version. Hart has a version. Really? As well as Cher. I haven't heard any of those. <laughs> I um, No, I haven't heard any of them. I mean, the... the uh who was the first one that you named? Uh, Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison. Yeah. His, I would think, would be pretty close to the Everleys. Yeah. They, they had a similar musical style. Um, of course, he didn't have the, the two-part harmony that the Everly Brothers did, but they were both rockabilly. Um, share in yeah. heart. That's, yeah. that's wild. But uh, Nazareth's version still remains the standard. Uh, the song had appeared in several TV ads and movies over the years, including Dazed and Confused, Supernatural, the movie Click, and the TV show Scrubs. I remember the scrubs. Yeah. I remember, I remember dazed and, commu- and confused. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it has been used a number of times. In Norway, the song charted for 61 weeks and stayed at number one for 14 of them. In fact, it remains the best-selling single ever on the Norwegian charts. 
There's a random fact for you. There is, and what an achievement <laughs> that is. Yes. The Germans like David Hasselhoff, and Norwegians like um, like um, Nazareth. Nazareth. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, I'm a sucker for a good 70s power ballad, and uh, this, I think, is one of the best. Uh, you can hear the Everly Brothers in that sweeping melody, but Nazareth was able to take the song to a next level and kind of cement its place in the classic rock canon. Yeah, well, and so many of the power ballads are so over the top. I mean, this one just feels, it, to me, it, it was never exaggerated. It doesn't have that, you know, just that cringy effect that, you know, after so many listens, you just forward it. On. I, I would never forward Nazareth. I no, love, no. love this song. I just think it's, it's perfect. I believe there was a Gatorade commercial that used it not too long ago, too. It was in black and white, and the athletes were, you know, performing, hmm. and, and they would sweat, and the sweat was the color of the Gatorade they were drinking. Oh, really? I think they used the song for that campaign, too. Don't remember that. Yeah. Although, uh, we cut we cut the, the ties to cable a while ago, so it, it would depend on how far back the commercial yeah. ran. Um, Although, now we have just as many ads on streaming. We so. do. When did that happen? We're back to yeah, we're back to, we're back to it, and we're paying so many for so many streaming services, we might as well I mean, most have an option where, like, for instance, Hulu, you know, you have a couple ads every 10 minutes. You could pay another, you know, double the price for no ads. Right. Now, my wife, she watches a lot of YouTube bloggers, and so she actually paid for the, uh, the YouTube. Oh, she has the YouTube Red? Red, so yeah. she doesn't get any commercials. So, I jump on hers when I watch YouTube, and then she gets angry because the algorithm then is messed up <laughs> because of everything that I played when she wasn't watching it. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. <sighs> That's one thing I worry about when, I, when we, do this, um, we do this podcast because we're listening to so much music and a lot of it's stuff that I wouldn't normally listen to. Right, yeah. And so my algorithm isn't quite right because of that. At the, I know. At the end of the year, when they give you your, your top songs, a lot of those songs are because I, I was preparing for this. Yeah, I, when, when they released my, my 100 yeah. uh, for, for last year, so many of them were Gen X mixtape numbers, which I just kind of laughed. But the computer's really, really uh, confused. <laughs> I, I, oh, it has to be, because my, yeah, my uh, algorithm is all over the damn place. Um, Have you tried the new Auto GJ on Spotify yet? Yes. Yeah, it's actually very, it it's, it's spot on. And here's what it's done. It, it's, it, there was one problem that I always had with streaming services versus CDs. And that is, in, unless you, off the top of your head, think about what you want to listen to, right? It's not like you can go, now you can have, you can build playlists and favorite albums, of course. But, you know, when we had CDs, I would go over to the rack and I would just kind of look through and, and something would pop up. And I'd yeah. be like, oh, yeah, I haven't thought about that in a long time. And I would listen to it. Since streaming, that, that never happens, unless right. I hear something on the radio or something. This DJ is perfect for that because mm-hmm. it pulls those songs that they know you like, that you've listened to in the past, and it, it fills that void. It does. And, and not only that, but the algorithm is, I mean, they've always been very good at identifying songs I did not know. Right. But the, I don't know. There's just something about, because they do a block. You know, they'll give me a block of songs I've never heard. They'll do a block by genre or a block by artist sometimes, Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I, I love everything that they throw at me. It's it's just, it's very impressive. And the AI voice is, is they're starting to get really convincing now. They are, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, of course, my wife does uses it now. And on, on the 4th of July, we were both listening to it, but separately. And uh, the same spiel that he gave about 4th of July, he gave to her. So I'm like, well, maybe not that individualized. <laughs> not yet. Yeah, they'll get there. Um, we need to make a decision about Spotify. Yeah. Because they are starting to really, it's like every episode. Well, but uh, just it's a quick uh, for the listeners. Um, we we claim fair use because we are commentary, music, com, music commentary podcast, okay? We're not just putting a bunch of songs on Spotify um, so that we can get, you know, 
right. listens or something and take money away from the artist. That's not what we're doing, obviously. We're playing a, a, about a minute segment of the song so that if you haven't heard the song or forget, it makes more, much more sense when we're um, discussing it. Um, Spotify, however, doesn't know this. The computer doesn't know this. And so they have recently been bringing up a lot of, you know, not quite cease and desist, but saying, uh, you know, somebody has, the record companies put a claim. And right. so there's there's a procedure by writing back and saying, no, 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 I'm allowed to use this under fair use, which which I've done. And I want to say 95% of the ones we've gotten are still on there. Right. But, but there are a couple episodes that Spotify had to remove. And if I want to, I can contact the record company and go down that road. But um, so I think we're okay for now. Okay. But there are some podcasts that aren't even on Spotify, music podcasts that are not on Spotify for this reason. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Because I, you know, it, it was, it, we had a couple here and there over the last few seasons, but now it's like, we, I don't know, I just... They're getting more aggressive. I get it. it they're comes, trying, to, they're yeah. trying to knock down piracy. I which, which I, yeah, which I'm, I'm for. You know, give the, give the artists and then, you know, it's not even the artists, it's everyone else who works on the, on the music. What they you know. should do, and hopefully this will be the case, um, hopefully Spotify and other podcast services will get to a point where you can apply as a fair use podcast, mm, yeah, where you apply and you give a sample of your, your podcast and, and you give a description and then somebody somewhere says, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll let these go from now on because we know this is a reputable podcast yeah. that isn't just pirating music. Okay, so you you think we're still good for now? I mean, even if some of them aren't Spotify, at least it's yeah another avenue for people to listen to. True, us. and I don't want to lose our listeners who listen on yeah, Spotify. Yeah, we have quite a few. That's why I'm not ready to pull the plug on it. Okay, yeah, I just I saw the new email come in just this week, and it, it was just an eye roll. It just know? takes a few seconds to click, and we'll see. We'll okay, see. Yeah. all right, your last one. My last one. Okay, um, I went with the very romantic. Uh, ballad Sea of Love this one was released by the Honey Drippers came from their volume one album in 1984 it hit number three on Billboard the original version dates back to 1959 by Phil Phillips with the Twilights and it was number two uh, back then Phil Phillips was born John Philip Baptiste in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and in 1958, he was working there as a bellhop. There was a girl named Verdi Mae Thomas, who he was trying to impress, and since he was good with the guitar, he decided to do it with a song. In the Billboard Book of One-Hit Wonders, Phillips is quoted as saying, 
quote, I had my guitar, so I went and wrote this song, Sea of Love. You see, she really didn't believe in me, but I felt if I could sing about it, a sea of love where it's quiet and peaceful, I could really show her how much I loved her and cared for her. A gas meter, I guess, uh, a gas meter reader, rather, had heard Baptiste practicing the song at, uh, you know, out back, and he told him that he should see a record producer named George Corey, and um, he did. Corey had him record the song and convinced him to take the stage name Phil Phillips, and the song was released on Corey's independent record label. It did so well in Louisiana that Mercury Records picked up the song to distribute nationally, where it became a big hit. Phillips claims he earned just $6,800 from the song. He said he didn't even get the girl, but he said it's okay by him because he married the right one. He said, it's a good thing I didn't marry that Verdi uh, because uh, I ended up with the woman I was meant to be with, which is kind of sweet. Phillips goes down in history as a one-hit wonder. Although he did release four more singles, he be later became a DJ at KJEF in Jennings, Louisiana. 25 years later, the Honey Drippers covered the song. Now, now for those who don't remember, and those who are not yet born, we do have listeners who are not Gen X. Thank you for listening. Uh, the Honey Drippers were a pet side project of Led Zeppelin vocalist Robert Plant. And it was, you know, a telling thing about Robert Plant at his peak. He used to sneak on stage with Rockpile and sing Elvis songs before Zeppelin would take the stage. Um, and Swan Song, the, the label, you know, their, their label, they signed Dave Edmonds, for example, when his retro rock was about the furthest thing from the monolithic Zeppelin of, of physical graffiti. Plant always harbored a deep abiding love for early rock and roll, a fact that was often obscured by his restlessness. Um, he indulged on his first two post-Zeppelin solo albums. They were glistening modern albums with a heavier debt to Robert Fripp than Little Richard. Uh, but then two albums in, he switched tactics for an EP detour, The Honey Drippers, and he titled it Volume One. Um, the EP, it is, it's an unabashedly retro rock and roll project that hauled out five golden oldies from the pre-Beatles era, um, era, rather, uh, and served them up authentically, uh, or at least as authentic nostalgia. It turns out that Plant had long wanted a rock band with heavy emphasis on rhythm and blues, and to achieve this goal, Plant brought several big names into the fold. I didn't realize just how many big names there were. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, of course, uh, the Honey Drippers lineup included fellow former Zeppelin member Jimmy Page. It included Jeff Beck, who was a former Yardbird member like Page, chic guitarist Niles Rogers, late night with David Letterman keyboardist Paul Schaefer, original Judas Priest guitarist Ernest Chataway, and stray cat Brian Setzer. And the Honey Drippers derived their name, actually, from Roosevelt Sykes. He was an American blues singer known as the Honey Dripper. Uh, there's a certain sense of pastiche here, uh, without question, particularly in how their cover of Sea of Love is drenched in oceans of strings. Uh, it's far more than on the Phil Phillips original, uh, which manages to evoke the era of white pop covers in a way that no straightforward cover could. Uh, but that's, that's kind of the charm of the record, really. Some listeners, I think, may find this kind of imitation a bit campy. But there's a genuine warmth, I think, in Plant's performance, and, and his bandmates have a great time running through these handful of, of oldies, uh, particularly Rockin' at Midnight. Rockin' at Midnight is actually a cover of Good Rockin' Tonight by Elvis. Um, it was originally intended to be the first single from the EP. Um, but as we've mentioned so many times before on the podcast, radio disc jockeys used to have a lot of autonomy. They used to have free reign when they were on the air, and 
as has happened so many times, when Rocket and Midnight was released, the DJs flipped the 45, and it was a cover of Phil Phillips' Sea of Love on the other side. So it was the B-side Sea of Love that that really soared up the charts. Rocket and Midnight did chart. It peaked at number 25. Sea of Love peaked at number 3. Robert Plant was actually quite horrified with the success of Sea of Love. Really? Yeah. Um, he really feared that it was going to destroy his reputation as a frontman, as a hard rocker. So, uh, because he didn't want to get typecast as a crooner, he deliberately cut off the career of the Honey Drippers. And that is why they never released a planned volume two. Interesting. Yeah, he didn't want to be a crooner, and he was afraid Sea of Love was going to turn him into just that. So, And Phil Phillips, not to be confused with the millennial Phil Phillips, right. who would later be uh, featured on American Idol and, yeah. and have some hits on his own. Big, big hit was Home. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Actually, he was Philip Phillips, though. Oh. So, which is even worse as a name. Um, it's a rather unfortunate name, Philip Phillips. Um, so, um, yeah, I always loved their version of Sea of Love, though. I, it's just, it, to me, it's, the strings are a bit heavy, but it's it's just very, Robert Plant can sing. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people, you, know, you get so used to hearing him in, as as the Zeppelin frontman with the, the, you know, the howls and the, the falsetto, but he... He could do. He's the real deal. His and work with Alison Krauss is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to see them. They they were playing Blossom, but I just, I don't know. I just didn't have the money. The tickets were really, really high. It's getting ridiculous. It, it is, and there were no lawn seats. It, it was Pavilion only, and I think they started at like one fifty. Mm. And I'm like, I love them both, but I don't love them together enough to pay that kind of money. So sure, I, I didn't sure. go. Um, but I do love what he and Krauss do together. It's it's some pretty magical stuff. Yep. So. Your turn. All right, my last pick. Here's one that everyone remembers from 1982. Putting on the Ritz by mm. Taco from his album After Eight. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? on the Ritz Different types who wear a day coat Pants with stripes and cutaway coat Perfect fits Putting on the Ritz Dressed up like a million dollar trooper Trying hard to look like Gary Cooper Come let's mix where Rockefellers Walk with sticks or umbrellas in their mitts on the Ritz. Have you seen the well-to-do up and down Park Avenue on that famous thoroughfare with the noses in the air? High hats and arrow collars, white spats and lots of dollars, spending every dime for a wonderful time. Even early in Berlin is not safe from our podcast. So Irving Berlin, I'm trying to think, does that predate your? Um... It would predate the first English version of okay. Just a Gigolo, but not not the actual. Gotcha. Um, okay. Not not the Austrian song itself. Gotcha. A cover of his uh, "Putting on the Ritz" by Dutch singer Taco, and gave the song a synth pop treatment, and it went all the way to number four on Billboard. 
Uh, yeah, I never expected to feature an Irving Berlin song, other than White Christmas. I think we well, probably we, featured. Well, we actually used this in our Halloween episode last year, though, from Young Frankenstein. So, oh, did we? Yeah, yeah, because ah. I used the, the Monsters version. I had when, forgotten. Well, you should um, have told me. We repeated a song. Well, that's okay. We didn't repeat the same version, okay. although they're very similar. Yeah. I, I'd forgotten Taco's version until you, you listed it, and I was listening. I'm like, this isn't too far removed from Mel Brooks. Yeah, I forgot you know, that we, comedic we featured attempt. that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the video for the cover, which was played in heavy rotation in the early days of MTV, contained uh, dancers in blackface. Did not age very well. Did it really? I don't remember that. In fact, an altered version of the video has since been released, so uh, anything new. Now, maybe you can find the original on YouTube, but my guess is the Vivo stuff is, is the newer version. Right. If you listen closely to the end of the song, Taco pays melodic homage to other Irving Berlin classics, such as There's No Business Like Show Business, Always, and White Christmas. The White Christmas one's really hard to pick up. It's just a quick little melodic frill at the end. I was going to say, I, I can see the other two, but White yeah, Christmas, yeah, I don't, yeah, I've, yeah, you I've can, never heard You have to listen that. for it, but you can hear it. When the song hit, Irving Berlin, who was then 95, so he was 95 in 1982, became the oldest living songwriter to hit the top 10. Hmm. There's another factoid for you. The song was the only hit for Taco in the U.S., putting him in the league of most successful or one of the most successful one-hit wonders of the 1980s. And uh, I was not familiar with the original 1982, of course. I didn't know Irving Berlin. And um, I could tell that it was like a throwback to an earlier time, very similar to the Honey Drippers. There were a lot of covers that when I was pretty young in the early 80s, could tell that they sounded, you know, from a different era, but didn't right. know that they were cover tunes. Um, and, you know, it, it might have also made me a bit uneasy if you've seen the video to know why, because Taco came off a bit creepy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a few, and, and they were all European yeah. bands. Yeah, like, like Falco. Yeah. It, it, but, it, but Taco was really kind of, he had this really, like, baby face. Yeah. Um, and... He wore this tuxedo, and, and his dance was kind of awkward. And at the end of the video, or at the end of the song, you hear the, the clomping of the horses, and the whole thing just kind of was unsettling to me. Yeah. Well, even Thomas Dolby kind yeah. of freaked me out a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. I loved She Blinded Me With Science, but there was some... I, yeah, some of them, I don't know, if, just very bad choicing in wardrobe and costume, I think. <laughs> so, um, uh, someone, It was the early 80s, and anything was, yeah. was fair game. But they're makeup artists. I think they need to work on their makeup morgue a bit I, it was yeah it, there were some creepy ones you're mm-hmm. right but uh so this and there's another song that you're going to introduce in the second half uh which is also very similar in the way that it was a throwback throwback song from the pre-rock era right that was covered so but that's all i have for for taco probably the last time we'll ever talk about taco i, I would think so on this podcast yeah. he, I, I, he's <laughs> I, I don't know that he's still living um i did see a, a few uh photographs um when he was he was older and he still kind of has that baby face yeah, I don't know that uh, Taco will ever be needed again on Gen X mixtape. But um, <laughs> no offense, Taco. No, no, no offense. You know, <laughs> especially if it's Tuesday. I mean, anybody I do, can take an love, old Irving Berlin Taco. song and turn it into a number four hit. That's something. That is. That's that's actually pretty impressive because you would think new wave '80s. There's no way in hell that putting on the Ritz is going to hit the charts. Right. And but it 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 did. I think I remember arguing with my grandfather because he said that it was an old song that he had. You know. Heard um, growing up, and I said, "No, it's by Taco." <laughs> I'm arguing with him. He's like, "No, it's it was done before." I'm like, "Really? I mean, I know it sounds that way, but I think I remember that." Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, the arrogance of youth. <laughs> we were all guilty, and our children are our children are worse. Although maybe that's because I'm 
now hearing it from an adult perspective, I don't know. Um, that's it for, that's all. for this week. Yeah. All right. So next week we have 12 more covers from the 80s. You may not have known were covers. Um, and then, of course, we have part two, which will be next month, and that will be the millennials and the Gen Zers covering our songs. So you'll want to stay tuned for the next three consecutive episodes for the full two-part series. Um, we want to give a shout-out to our sponsor, Jake Callahan Painting, serving the greater Cleveland area. Uh, before the winter months come, you might want to give her a call, uh, look her up if you are interested in any painting details to your home outside. Does an amazing job. Um, tell her that Alan Dave sent you. Um, by all means, please continue to send us the occasional email, uh, send us a message. Um, we love having the conversation. Uh, we had a, an email not too long ago. Was, I loved it. Um, we actually learned about Dr. Teeth. And, and we, oh, yes, 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 yeah, yes. We, we yes. were right. It was Elton John and, and Dr. John, a, an amalgamation of the two. And um, Yeah, thank you. That was an awesome. awesome it, it was an incredible email. It was really cool to learn um, because he actually explained pretty much the entirety of the band, whoever right. everybody uh, was meant to represent. Chance Joplin, yeah. uh, I believe was, um, what's her name? The, yeah. Um, I forget the Muppets name. Yeah. Um, well, the I, animal was uh, Was Keith, Keith Moon. Moon, yeah. Right. Uh, well, he said that I was right about Johnny Mitchell, too. He said it was Johnny Mitchell and Janice. Yes, right. Um, that's right. The that's two right. of them. Um, next episode, maybe we'll look it up. I, I, I apologize for not having his name at the ready, but it was a great great uh, email that was sent or, or message so and thank you for would that. like to beg again for reviews um, it's been pretty stagnant we had a period of, of very positive reviews and then um, it's been been a while since someone's posted one so if you kind of dig the show we would love a, a review yeah uh, it certainly helps us to continue to grow the audience I mean, it, the audience has grown uh, significantly we want to thank everybody who's stuck around and, and continues to listen but you know uh, I'm still not sure why <laughs> yeah yeah I, well maybe it's to laugh at us I, yeah. we're, we're, well it's just two old white guys talking about you know yeah. music so yeah. I mean there, there's a niche audience for that I there suppose there is yeah um, doesn't make me feel quite the snob that I, I sometimes think that I am when it comes to music so we must be accessible um, nonetheless thank you anyway for uh, <laughs> thank you very much for continuing mm -hmm. to, to listen but yeah if you can give us uh, any reviews especially on Apple Podcasts that, that seems to be the route to, to bringing in uh, more listeners um, but just Continue to stay with us. We and, have and a shout out to Croatia. We're we're still like in the top five in Croatia. Are we? Are we? We've been in the top five in music commentary and like the top fifty in, in music for the last year or so. So, Croatia, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I am. Um, that's one of the coolest parts of this. People are listening to us. Oh yeah, around the world. They I actually think it's up to like you know forty different countries, yeah, 50 different yeah, countries, something so. like that. And I'm just like, we appreciate it. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, well. That's all for this time. Hot Funk, Cool Punk, Even If It's Old Junk, another mix of memories awaits next year. But what next year? Next what am year? I saying? <laughs> wow, this is Summer Brain. Yeah, another mix of memories awaits next time. <laughs> it's only August, Dave. <laughs> only August. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but for now, press pause, lift the needle, hit eject, and we will see you this year <laughs> in two weeks. Sitting in a box undigified 
Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Slice of time. 